Asset Arrest, your global agent for accessing the property you can't afford. Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Asset Arrest and my second Freeze Week special. I'm just off to meet Tirdad Zolgadar, writer and curator uh, based in Berlin. We are going to view a um, 38 million pound house 69 Avenue Road and a £55 million house, Radlett House on Radlett Place, which is just kind of across the road from the first one. No idea what to expect. They look like the biggest houses I've viewed in London and they're definitely the most expensive ones. Um, I looked up the street and in 2020 it was um, worked out that it was the most expensive street in London for residential property with the average house price being £30 million. It's by Primrose Hill. It's in St. John's Wood and that's an area of London I am literally never in. Um, so I am looking forward to this. Hi Tirdad. Hi. Thank you very much for um, joining me to do some property this week. Um, very glad to be here. Uh, just to give you a little insight to my freeze week activities, I a couple of days ago went to a, a kind of corporate event Um that was mostly for developers and planners and investors and was about um, cultural placemaking and um, what they were calling like successful regeneration. And today this feels like a nice kind of partner for that because it's about art and real estate. We're looking at real estate but really it's completely connected to art and it's maybe a kind of flip side as in it's not about placemaking but it's essentially tied into exactly the same thing (laughs) i wanted to start i was wondering if you could well maybe you can give a brief introduction to yourself yeah sure um so i work as a writer and a curator and i've been doing so for a while and most recently uh, for KW in Berlin, um, where I was working on topics such as exactly those that you were describing now, um, how contemporary art folds into uh, placemaking strategies, uh, or what some people call territorial innovation models. And I'm interested in both price that um, we pay as art producers for this um, complicity, but then also um, I'm most interested in trying to find a way beyond the melancholia and to see whether there are small ways in which we can exert our leverage in a different direction. And what do you think, uh, I mean like a lot of it's quite obvious, but what would you say is the price we pay um, or, the, or the city pays? Um, the price, the price, this, the, well, uh, the price the city at large pay, pays, you mean, for these, these, yeah, these just strategies for, of regeneration? Or, or, or for, like, the communities um, that are existing amongst this kind of artistic activity? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, it's, it's a form of, of social cleansing, um, that, that is very, um, particular. What is, what is, you know, there are people who say that this is, this has been going on for very long and it's just the natural cycle of the city and so on and so forth. Um, But I mean, even if we were to assume that this is enough reason to just sit back and accept it, 
even then, um, you would have to say that the speed at which it is happening is unprecedented. The speed at which people are being um, displaced and um, moved to other places where they suddenly become part of new cycles of regeneration and turn. Um, and the speed at which uh, inner cities are becoming these uh, investment funds with sidewalks. Um, and, and then also the nature of the actual or let's say the role that the actual material, the stuff, the built matter plays, is also shifting in itself. It's a, it's a level of abstraction that uh, we haven't quite seen before. And the upshot in the end is um, inner cities that are caricatures of, of themselves and that do not really make, make room for um, working class families or anyone who, who, who cannot compete with people on the move. I mean, the way I see kind of processes of gentrification in London right now is there's, I mean, squeezed out is even the kind of, I don't know, like traditional or older form of gentrification where artists were able to like move to an area that's cheap and open a project space or, you know, do these kind of like organic activities. And now here anyway, I, I can't speak for Berlin, but it's very much about developers implementing this cultural placemaking strategy and they provide the space and the artists and cultural organisations are invited in, kind of like enticed in with free or cheap rent for a certain period of time, after which it's kind of yet unknown what happens. Um, would you say that that's different to what's happening in Berlin? No, that is definitely ongoing as well, yes. And KW itself, um, I was suddenly caught in a very uncomfortable position when KW decided to get in bed with a very large and aggressive real estate firm from Cologne, which very unapologetically is doing exactly what you describe. Um, so this this kickstarted a whole sort of thing that would go off on a tangent, and I can tell you that story a little later on in the day if you're if you're interested. But mm. yes, it is it is happening, and almost everyone that I can see within the mainstream contemporary art field is very willing to to go along with it. And do you think that's because they feel like they have no other choice? I mean, like in terms of yeah. You know, institutions and artists, like all these kind of actors within the whole structure. Yeah, I think it's a mix of different things. Um, the sense of helplessness, there's no other way to do it. Um, things are too expensive, I won't get uh, my exposure, I won't get my cheap studio, I won't get my exceptional uh, little um, downtown adventure if we don't do this. Um, but then there's also the fact that all this stuff dovetails very nicely with the mythology of contemporary art as we know it this whole idea of flux and constant reinvention and going with the flow and the idea of being the critical voice that speaks truth to power we are never power ourselves we're just these innocent little you know uh, uh, figures sitting on the, on, on the shoulders of downtrodden <laughs> yes we're downtrodden <laughs> You know, you know. At worst, we're just these fig leaves, but we're not really part of the problem. And so, this makes it easier for us to to go along. And I think I think that the, one of the few upsides of Corona, very few upsides, was that it kind of forced us to take ourselves a little more seriously. And I think that some of us are a little more aware of how we are proactively part of this food chain. Hmm. I think it's slightly more, it's seeped into the mainstream to an extent, I, compared to two yeah. years ago. I mean, I, yeah, I think I agree, but I also, 
I don't know, there's something that just feels so grotesque about this week, Freeze Art Fair, and the fact that I, I think how long, like a year and a half ago, everyone was like, this is maybe the end of capitalism, yeah, <laughs> this is right. the end of this is the end of art running this way and then a year later we have NFTs and then now the art fair circuit's back on and it's all just business it's seemingly business as usual I don't know if it is in terms of like people buying art or whatever but I think you're I think you're right for the large part Um, but I think that there is there might be a critical sort of mass just big enough to also offer some some other kind of orientation, particularly among students. Hmm. I haven't taught in about a year and a half, but I hear from people who are still teaching now that students are not interested in the same old, same old, and that they are hungry for other models, and that they're not buying into the the old sort of fetish for productivity, for productivity's sake. Hmm. Um, I hope that's true. Yeah... You don't have a choice but to hope that it's true. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, I can't help but feel like it's not true in many London art schools okay. and maybe that's because of the ridiculous cost of studying here and living here but and the type of people that are able to study here. But I don't know, this is like me yes. just speculating on the situation. You, you sound a lot like a friend of mine who will remain unnamed. and who t- mm, yeah. yeah. No, I was just going to liken it to the supposedly like general malaise that that people are feeling um, I mean like certainly here so many and it's partly to do with Brexit and the exiting of like many you know EU workers but it's also I don't know it seems like people are less willing to put up with shit people are less willing to work for minimum wage for a mm-hmm. job that is treating them like shit and has made them work through a pandemic in unsafe conditions and it's, it's been talked about in this way that people are just like no I'm not going to do that you know I, I've I don't know, I've seen things differently because of, you know, the past year and a half. And I think that is hopefully quite useful in some way. It has this also, uh, do you notice that within our field as well? Or this is more in the broader working uh, population? I'm not sure about in art. I mean, I've, I've, I certainly feel like I've got less patience for a lot of things. And I kind of realised, like, why why had I been largely centering my social life around like going to these art openings and events and you know like I yeah you know like feeling like I had this community around me that actually I realized was not a community that I would call upon or cared about or like cared about me or yeah yeah. so personally so I don't know I think probably many people feel like that yeah I would I would I would agree I think it's a large minority that's the sort Mm. of guess if I were to venture I guess it's what I would say what do you think about the the kind of switch that has happened in terms of like more things happening online like lectures talks even work being shown online do you think that's a positive thing yeah I don't uh, I I don't really um, see a downside unless it starts to cannibalize the real life spaces which is which is the concern among many people I haven't seen that happen yet. I haven't seen anyone um, say, oh, I couldn't install my work because it's online. Like, this this mm. hasn't happened so far. So far, I've seen the fact that I, I have worked in, you know, places like uh, Tehran uh, a bunch of times where it's, you know, it's, it's one of those big cities that are relatively isolated and where you are actually pretty damn grateful if a whole slew of stuff is suddenly going online whether it's screenings or talks or panels or workshops or 
these yeah. pedagogical situations. They're taken much more seriously than they were two years ago. Two years ago, they were best a kind of appendix to what we're doing. But just in because real there's life. been this focus on, yeah, I mean, it's been kind of amazing being able to attend. You know, like waking up at two in the morning and going to a talk in whatever country, exactly. or like. Yeah. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I'm completely like desperate to avoid video calls and meetings whenever I can. But I of think course. when you're just listening, or when it's not a meant to be like a group discussion, which is very difficult to actually conduct in this manner, then it's kind of a wonderful thing. Yeah, absolutely. You mean you mean the way it kind of encroaches upon your the way work kind of colonizes the rest of our lives, and you know, at any chance it gets, and so the online is making that easier. Is that what you're uh, kind of yeah, in a way, but also I think in terms of like education, it's something that it that doesn't help, that doesn't aid okay. education. And, you know, okay. like in terms of like universities or okay. these experiences yeah. where you want to have a discussion in a room with people because then yes, it works better. And no, it shouldn't. It shouldn't come to the detriment of that. Absolutely, I agree with you. Um, I, I I haven't I haven't encountered situations where it's been either or, and then hmm. things have gone. Um, online. I hope it doesn't go that way. But again, I haven't. I haven't. I've, I've done a few talks online since this happened, and for sure, you are in a vacuum mm. that is not quite as uh, rewarding as if you. you Especially have a if you're like That's you share a screen and then you can't see anyone, and you're just kind of talking at yourself. Yeah, but again, like I think, I think it's. If it if it if it allows you to make choices in terms of mobility, that's not a bad thing. Like we're mm-hmm. still so far away from uh, developing a sense of pride of place that is not about nationalism, yeah. that is not colonized by all those uh, discourses that we, you know, want nothing to do with. Um, you know, some kind of. Uh, a sense of uh, material context uh, that draws on other traditions. We're still very far away from that. Like our approaches are still quite cheesy and touch and go and confused. And so I think anything that pushes us towards taking that more seriously for now is positive. Is, is positive. Yeah, I guess it like ultimately helps things get out of the London, New York, Berlin exactly. kind Frieza of. Show network yeah, yeah anyway i think we need to go Let's do it. oh shit we're gonna well, we're gonna be late but i think that's quite um no, no, fitting. That's, that's anything else would be i'm, all, I'm i need to remember not to be apologetic yes don't apologize <laughs> for anything even if you break a window now laura <laughs> yeah. don't apologize i mean i would love to take a few things your fault. but i suspect that this house is not lived in in any capacity no and there no. will be nothing anyway um let's go so so don't say sorry for anything 69 Avenue Road, St. John's Wood, NW8. Unique and captivating villa located on one of London's most prestigious roads. Avenue Road is one of London's most prestigious addresses due to the calibre and size of the houses and its close proximity to the West End in central London. Recently dubbed the most expensive road in London, houses along here benefit from general plot sizes and excellent garden provision which is often not achievable in central London. 69 Avenue Road is in the best location on Avenue Road, facing southwest. The house is on one of the widest plots on the road with the largest frontage, carriage driveway and off-street parking for more than 10 cars. Located on the desirable east side of St. John's Wood the property is ideally situated for the local amenities of St. John's Wood High Street. 
Primrose Hill and Regent's Park, where one can find an abundance of shops, cafes, restaurants and green spaces. Mayfair is approximately 12 minutes drive from the property which is where one can find some of London's finest shops and restaurants. There are many independent schools in the surrounding area that are easily accessed including the American School in London which is approximately 9 minutes walk. Traditional grandeur and elegance meets modern living. 69 Avenue Road presents an excellent opportunity to expand on the existing plot size through the creation of a lower ground floor and rear extension at ground level. The newly formed lower ground floor would house some exceptional facilities including a swimming pool, spa, sauna, games room and generously sized cinema room. The ground floor extension includes a new, substantial, and state-of-the-art kitchen and dining area with a flat green roof which the master bedroom looks onto. This area will benefit from vast amounts of natural light along with garden views. Radlett House, Radlett Place. Our client purchased this plot of land with an existing modest four-bedroom house with direct access to Primrose Hill. Our client sought to develop a 35,00 feet square house with significant reception and recreation spaces. Planning permission was awarded, and the full project was developed to tender stage, arriving with confirmed and agreed contract price with the construction team ready to start works. The project was then suspended and sold. Uh, so we're just out of our viewing of two houses, houses if you can call them that, they were more like um I guess you say mansion. I mean, to me, that's a mansion. But uh, what did you think? <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. Um, um, it's it's interesting to to which degree we are very familiar with these interiors from just mainstream uh, movies and series and stuff like that. Like the the, the when you see things like this in. Um, in their in their representations, you, you think it's cliche, but then you actually do see this uh, very strange taste in furniture, the um, sort of um, this atmosphere, neurosis and gloom and misery, um, and and um, and then also the sense of complete ease with which this stuff is, is handled, that, you know, it's, it's perfectly normal to have hundreds and hundreds of square meters per person within a city where everybody's just scraping by to pay rent. Yeah, um, yeah, and I mean, I haven't really viewed many places where the people that own the, the houses are actually inside of them, and um, I think that does add another dimension where you're kind of like torn between oh these just seem like regular people like us but then also like god why are they so unfriendly and depressed yeah. <laughs> why are they what are they I don't know um yeah I yeah. mean I found that particularly the art collection of the second house the more expensive house was quite interesting I think the only photo I took I probably wasn't meant to take any photos but um was that of that a uh, particularly kind of political seeming work in the, in the hallway as you go up the stairs. I can't actually remember what it said, but I've got a, a photo of it. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the mirror was nice. Yeah, <laughs> and then that horrible thing with like paintbrushes stuck on a canvas together. Yeah, <laughs> she said the name, and I was like, "Who on earth is that?" Like, 
Yeah, I mean, it'll, it's it's uh, it's it's a question to to which degree our our field is also intertwined with with that kind of case, like oh, the funders in this because I, I taught in the states for a while and I've worked in the UAE. I know that when like there there is an umbilical cord which is very strong in many places, but then also with the gentrification of our cities the actual class where the classes where art audiences and art professionals will be recruited will also be more and more from the privileged upper strata it's going to become something more like opera do you think artists i mean i'm always amazed well i've only been to freeze like once or twice and i generally want to avoid it because i think i'll have like a panic attack in there but um i'm just i'm always amazed because i i mostly just see on like instagram or something but there's artists who are kind of respected for having these kind of political practices in some respects and then they're stood there in nice clothes like talking to high net worth individuals and I, I don't know i can never quite marry how that happens and if they care where that artwork ends up or why or how that affects the things they're supposedly interested in or yeah Uh, I don't um, I'm not sure that that's really the um, the criteria when, when the work is conceived of or when it's you know, put out in the world. Like we we were talking about m- mobility earlier, and an artist I ran into um, just last week was saying how how did this artist put it? The epistemology of climate change is the most important thing to work on nowadays, and she cannot wait to finally get back on a plane and install her work herself because it was so tedious to do this over over Zoom and there was absolutely no contradiction between mm. those two the work was about the climate crisis yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and I think it's very much the same sort of um, ball, ball game like there's, there's a disconnect or we were talking about a certain school earlier um, where the, the, the subject matters within the seminar rooms were highly politicized um, but there was very little discussion of the politics of how the school was was um, <clears throat> conceived of how the mm. director had to fight tooth and nail with politicians to actually get it where it is, um, the kind of impact that it has on the neighborhoods that it, where it does its, you know, whatever it's doing. Um, it's, but it's what, yeah, what do you think about that? Like, like yeah, I, I, that's the other thing. There's, you know, the whole art fair circuit. There's also the educational circuit. Um, I think very much especially somewhere like London or New York or various places in the UK and US um, that attract this like international elite who can dip in and then go back home or whatever. Like, but what I don't know. What what can the people working there do or what? Um, I, I, I think I think one 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 key thing is is the the commitment to a particular set of questions over and watches the space of one commission or two but actually over a decade or so like I think that already changes a lot 
like once you start to actually dig into something which is um, uh, where you have uh, a degree of specialization over time that changes so much because you yourself become more invested in it you start to take it more seriously you start to take yourself more seriously and you start to become more choosy in terms of who you work with who you speak to who you schmooze with um, and you realize that um, uh, there is something to be said for going beyond the cliches that we all bump into the first time we start to look at something and so suddenly if you know if it's gentrification of the inner cities once you've been working on it for five, ten years, your work starts to reflect something beyond mm. the usual known fest. Um, and yeah, you need, I mean, there's otherwise no way you even understand the intricacies of it exactly. or like exactly. what's actually going on. You're just kind of moving through that cycle of exactly. like buzzwords or something. Yeah, which are, there, and it's not, it's, it's not very um, helpful or uplifting, even just from an individual point of view. It's just this depression, depressing repetition of patterns that you become all too familiar with. But, you know, there are the, the most interesting artists out there who are working with this kind of stuff. I would include yourself, are the ones who've been doing it for a number of years, and they kind of, they have slightly other pathways into the conversation, and... Uh, and then other avenues open up. I mean, in Berlin, a big thing is, is uh, there's this wonderful word, which is Verstetigung. The Germans are great with their uh, terms, and it means something like steadification or perennialization or like entrenchment. Mm. So trying to find out what legal tools, financial tools, and other trickeries you have at your disposal to just like get your foot in the door but then stay there like to not let yourself be this is something artists kind of artists even even artists are starting even to do this like it used to be <laughs> just like community organizers and activists and you know activist lawyers yeah. and stuff like this and now artists are also so you think um, so maybe people um, are getting more involved in the actual like legal planning all these kind so. of aspects of things that exactly. are equally yeah. as important because yeah I, I think mean, so. you need to right I think so I think so I think I think the, the infrastructural nuts and bolts are becoming part of the their repertoire and then and then the it's very tedious work and really like hats off it's, it's more than I've managed to achieve and it's 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 very demanding but then the aesthetics also and the fun of it also come in through the side door it's not all just like toil and blood sweat and tears you know you work with an actual building with a space you start to discover your neighborhood in a different way um, you start to package it for the outside world along different lines and if it's just a project space that's there for but so this, I mean, like, does this mostly refer to like artists who take over space? Do you think and like try to maintain that space in a long-term way? I, I mean, that's kind of like the in football terms, the Champions League. Like, mm. that's, that's the best case scenario. If you actually manage to do that, it's fantastic. Like, um, I'm in admiration of this duo, um, which set up a place called Export to Print in Berlin, which is a fabulous place for, um, which caters to not just artistic needs, but also small businesses um, mm. and social, how do you say, social welfare facilities in the neighborhood. And, um, and they managed to 
um, sort of uh, take it out of uh, circulation. They've removed that, that, that property from the market. Okay, and there's no but how have they done that? Um, they did it through certain uh, co cooperative and contractual uh, stipulations. Not by literally market. buying it. But they, they bought it with the help of a foundation that specializes in Switzerland. In, uh, that foundation is yeah. in Switzerland, yes. There's a exactly. place in London that's just opening now, or just opened, called House of Anetta. Have you heard okay. of this? No, I haven't. Uh, it's been, it was bought by the same foundation in Switzerland. It's the first one in the UK. Okay. And it's on on or just off of Brick Lane, which is Fantastic. obviously oh, wow. completely... That's really... Like, <laughs> I think... Yeah. I think I think they might have actually won the campaign, but I think most of it was poised to become some kind of mega shopping, like new shopping mall type situation. I'm not sure about that, but I know that this house had belonged to a woman who passed away and was quite heavily involved in um, activism around housing and this yeah Swiss foundation have got it and there's things happening there all focused on issues of like housing and I mean, such I haven't been yet but yeah I'd like to see it too um, yeah you should go you should yeah, go while you're here um, you could do a, a reverse kind of um, session where you, you go in there and you threaten you're going to buy it up and see what happens <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> Please, <laughs> hundred million. I'm here. <laughs> I want you to leave the traces of uh, social practice. Um, which brings me actually. I want to. I want to talk to you a bit about the house statistic in Berlin. But first of all, I just want to mention the. Um, I don't even know how to say the word. Taculus. Taculus. I don't know how you pronounce yeah, it properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that is another case study in my PhD, which is quite different to the other forms of housing I'm talking about because it's quite standard and. Um, investor unit type yeah. shit yeah. Yeah. but the trajectory from being a squat into obviously what it's becoming is it just feels like the most ridiculous ironic kind of <laughs> caricature of what's happening absolutely do you think the artists have some responsibility in what's happened to that um it's hard to blame uh, anyone in particular because the, 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 the city I mean the city collectively at the time made a huge mistake in the, this, the, the public property that has been sold off since that time now adds up to an area as big as Friedrichshain Kreuzberg which is enormous. It's, mm. it's enormous. It's like a, it's, it's just it's a disaster. Um, that and and it's it's and it's odd of me to say this, but it's almost understandable because at the time Berlin was a shrinking city. The idea was that there's not there's never going to be enough revenue in this place. The city is struggling to in maintain the, the yeah, yeah to maintain the properties it had. It looked like it would just stay like this and get poorer mm. and poorer over time. Now we look back and say this was pathetic. It was the biggest political mistake you could have made, and now we're all smarter and going around like, how could they? How could they? But the atmosphere back then was really bleak, and it was like no one's going to turn this into a, some kind of you know investment fund anytime. Um, and things <laughs> changed really quickly. I mean, now we can debate whether it was folly or malice. Mm. Um, but whether it was artists, you know, the, the, the broader population didn't suspect that it would pick up the way it did. No one, no one I knew was 
mm. privy to that. Well, I guess you know yeah, I mean? it doesn't. It didn't have the vibe of no. like a project space that was. I don't know, going through a certain tacklist in particular. I mean, yeah, no, um, I mean like that. That. Um, but then, like, also, I don't know. Like, it, it, literally, I can't imagine something in London. Like, this, I guess squatting just hasn't really been a, as big a thing here right. since the eighties. So, I mean, the the, the squatters. It, it, it's a very very mixed bag. Some some squatters did dig in their heels. There's still squats. Some squats have turned into cooperatives. Some squatters formed very, very helpful political coalitions with sort of immigrant communities and managed to block developments, which were really key. Um, and then other squatters... I mean, I was a squatter when I was a student in Geneva, and all the houses we squatted, we just, you know, when we were kicked out, we just kind of shrugged and left, so I'm not going to point the finger. Maybe that's why I'm unwilling to... <laughs> I don't know what age you were, but it's kind of... <laughs> When you're younger, that's just what you do, right? You just, you're like, yeah, move on, move on, move on. It's fine. Um, I don't know. But I mean, yeah, in the, in the in the 90s, we were just so depoliticized and, and, and bored in the world. We, we thought that time is on our side, you know. Mm. We really grew up with an optimism, which we might be the last generation to have grown up with that sense of, like, we just deconstruct our way into a better world. Just be really critical and savvy and theoretically savvy. It'll work out. (laughs) Sounds all right. We actually believe that. Um, I think people still believe things like this. Yeah. Maybe no, I mean not within the same circumstances, <laughs> but um, yeah. So, Houster statistic. I wanted to speak to you a bit about yeah because you've been involved in. You tell me. I mean, I, there. I I was I was involved in one particular thing, and I was a total latecomer, and I was involved for a year, um, and now I've, I've taken a step back since the lockdown, and I I might try and get involved again in the near future but I wasn't I wasn't part of the the crew that sort of made it into the minor miracle that it is I just wanted to would you and would you see that as a group of artists who did the kind of intervention imagine that it was artists why why did that work (laughs) like I don't that was no way that would happen in London I don't think but it was. Um, I and mean, it was should that, I tell, that, tell the story? Yeah, sorry. Or, or is it? No, no go on. <laughs> I mean, the, in a nutshell, it's the Hossa statistic is an enormous uh, modernist. Uh, it was a modernist ruin in the heart of the city, which housed um, the center for data collection on the citizens of communist East Germany. Um, it was abandoned, it was supposed to be demolished as part of this plan to um, turn the Alexanderplatz area in Berlin into this Manhattan skyline glamorama. Um, and then a group of a coalition of artists called ABBA, uh, ABBA, they um, did this kind of like a yes man-ish kind of stunt where they forged the municipal banner with the logo and they said they, they hung up this huge banner that said this building will not be demolished but turned into a center for that caters to the social and cultural needs of the city yay and they did a street fiesta and the cops bought into it and they regulated traffic for them until they realized no this is just a bunch of artists and they shut everything down but it was too late there was all it was already social media 
it gained traction. Um, people started talking about it. And then, lo and behold, within a few years, there was a progressive government coalition in place in the city. And they not only turned it, decided to turn it into a place that caters to the cultural and social needs of the city, they decided to double it in size, add social housing and the municipal offices and the new town hall. So it's going to be this very weird, polyfunctional mix of stuff. And that initial coalition of artists and activists still have, I think they're entitled to, I not quoting the numbers wrong. Anyone listening has to double check these numbers, but I think 20% of the overall um, space, which it's is huge enough to well. give them it's huge, leverage. Right? Yes, yes. Are they building more buildings? Yes, yeah, they're actually doubling it. The, yeah, sorry you yeah. said that. Yeah, but, yeah, um, yeah. So this is a, for once a nice, you know, nice story with a <laughs> Very unusual. <laughs> and I mean, I heard there was going to be like housing for refugees. I'm yeah, wondering what, yeah. like, I, I'm not sure in Berlin terms, what does affordable housing mean? Because here it means the type of housing I'm living in, which is just about manageable if you have a job or something. Like, it's not social housing. The, the, the problem with the German model of social housing, and I'm embarrassed to say that I don't know whether the House of, House of Statistics housing will be subject to this. The problem with the German model is not the rates at which they're rented out, but that it's always um, temporary. So it's like one or two generations of like, I think, I think it's 20 to 30 years, it's social housing, and then it goes back to the private sector. Hmm. And it's phased out. So um, someone, uh, Andre Holm, uh, who's this prominent sort of activist in Germany, he calls it um, publicly managed mass displacement. Like, that's what social housing amounts oh, wow. to. I thought, like, social housing <laughs> in Germany was, like, a relative Over utopia time. compared to here. It's, it's, a, it's a very corporatist kind of st- welfare state model in, in Germany. Mm. I wasn't aware of this until I actually moved there with a kid, and then I realized that it's, okay. a, it's a very sort of complicated set of um, terms. I hope that the House of Statistics um, housing is not subject to this. I'm, I don't know. And what what's the kind of projected timeline? Like, is it is is are we talking like that's a ten year project of building? No, no, I, I've got no conception of like how long it takes to build anything. But um, um, one thing, well, one the what I do know is that the the preparatory process, which began two two three years ago, is scheduled to take twelve years all in all. Oh, okay, I'm not and, that far. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there was a there was a panel recently where um, uh, the, the question was, is this, is this a model for the rest of the city? And one politician was saying, if it really is 12 years, it can't be. It's too slow, and the needs are too great. And um, the, the, the thing that the, the organizers themselves are saying is that if you listen to them talk, they've been doing this for two, three years, and the way they speak, it's already such a specialized language that you can barely follow. They've acquired this... Is this um, the government? Sort of, no, no, like, like the, the actual artists. Oh, the and, artists are going to... architects okay. and the... Because they need to for funding yeah, reasons? It's, um, it's, it's legal terms. It's okay. like zoning issues. It's, 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 it's what comes with the need for being able to negotiate. Um, and 
to sort of like because the because government owns the building and it will yeah. continue to yes but it's not taken out of any real estate market and it's like there's, there's in theory maybe once but even once you have this kind of agreement then there's a million things to decide yeah. on I mean 12 years is I mean like how on earth can there be the communication maintenance work like yeah you know the work that needs done to keep it on track or keep it remotely connected to what it was intended to be it does well, seem kind of like that's a huge gap to <laughs> for many problems it's, to occur it's um well this is this is yes um what i could add though is that it's also a place where the leverage of art could really come in handy because um art is good at um Looking at the tension, and so it can be very useful in terms of keeping this whole project in the public eye and making sure that promises are kept. Yeah. Um, so this is something that is, uh, and the, and it's actually it's, it's about art as propaganda and art as it's also art in a very you know fun way. It's not just about this nuts and bolts infrastructural activism kind of kind of art that uh, that can um, I don't know how to say this without sounding cheesy put a smile on people's faces <laughs> yeah I actually yeah I don't know I think art broadly speaking is um, is a way that like activism can be open to a broader public like it's you know like I, I don't know sometimes I'm even like terrified of kind of activist like enclosures of people that seem like terrifyingly politicized in a way that I I feel like judged and intimidated yeah but like through I don't know I guess yeah through this kind of certain characteristics of art there can be this like opening up of this like process of what you might call activism in a way that well, it communicates it to like a wider public maybe you know it visual it makes something visual or it does something um, with language in a different way yeah absolutely absolutely among among many other tools um, and that's where I mean in, in a context such as also statistic it's uh, it's so refreshing to see that you can you can do things without being part of the problem like you can subscribe to an agenda that's bigger than than art and you don't feel like you're necessarily freeloading and or or yeah exacerbating the problem but of course the project and development like that is in turn gonna affect the neighborhood and that that becomes a kind of tourist attraction in itself i guess and then it might it might um i mean a lot of the housing around it is is in in government hands um and the rest of it is already very much touristified it's a tourist area on one side and then quite there's already money there so yeah. it's kind of if if it's it would be it would it would be if anything it would it would if if Alexanderplatz keeps going in the direction it's going now the hostage statistic even if it becomes more fancy than it is now would be a kind of like a uh, you know an oasis of mm. resistance in comparison yeah you know yeah, yeah, to like the shopping malls that <laughs> exactly. are spinning up and I viewed some property around here oh <laughs> kind of okay investor unit penthouse nonsense I also just want to mention that I live in a borough of London Barking and Dagenham who are I mean like I would describe it as a borough that's not really remotely gentrified right now. Therefore, the council are doing everything they can. They're working with like curators. They're doing everything they can to like gentrify the place, to like use cultural placemaking. And they came up with a campaign where they were saying move to Barking, not Berlin. And they had um, like 
like posters and t-shirts printed that said Ich bin ein Barkinger. It's hilarious if you've probably never been to Barking because there's probably no reason to go there. But if you've been there, there's like, I don't know what the resemblance is. We're talking about a resemblance to like a very poor area of Berlin before any artistic activity was even happening, happening there. But it just, yeah, seems like the most sinister kind of marketing yeah. campaign that yeah. I've seen in London in a way. I mean, yeah, that does sound kind of sinister. I mean, the thing is, um, I, I guess it sounds like it's perched on the edge of the rent gap. Thing. Like, so, yeah. these, these are the places where art can be toxic, but there are so many places where it isn't. Like, most, during the research I've been making, it seems to me that most places in the world actually stay rich or stay poor. They're not subject to this this sort of this rent cap situation Hmm. and so art would have plenty of places to go that are maybe dull we're attracted to places that seem to be in transition Hmm. so we automatically become part of this dynamic Um, well yeah I'm I'm part of it I'm living here (laughs) not because I'm aware of that campaign (laughs) I'm in Berlin too I mean I live in Berlin we didn't move to you know Bochum where we wouldn't have been part of this dynamic we moved to Berlin where we are yeah I mean, yeah, Berlin makes the perfect kind of marketing jargon. It's not, um, even though I'm pretty sure artists who could afford to move to Berlin from London now probably wouldn't move to Barking because they're moving to Berlin for a reason, which is the creative and artistic and cultural and the whole thing. And then they can't find houses and then they pay as much as they would pay in London. And yeah. Yeah. But we need we need we need more stories like the host of statistics so we can uh, so so we can yeah stop stop complaining we have to stop. <laughs> huh? So many people make a career out of complaining. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. I kind of do too. No, I mean like, I I don't make a career out of doing this podcast, obviously, <laughs> but I feel like. I don't know if I'm just complaining and I don't know, but at least I'm taking up the space of yeah, elites. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I, I think I think you're allowing for an entry into the conversation that I hadn't hadn't seen before and I hadn't um, heard of it. And it actually is your story is getting into the mainstream. When I told my mom that we're we're meeting you, she actually read about you. Really? Yeah, and no. she has nothing to do with art. And she was like, oh, yeah. this artist. That's bizarre. And, yeah, she came across it somewhere, so it's, it's leading into. Yeah. Okay. So maybe we should leave it here. Okay. Yeah, with my mom. Yeah, with your mom. (laughs) (laughs) If your mom's ever in London and wants to come and view a house with me, please uh, put in touch with me. Or anyone else. I also do, before I started doing the podcast, I was mostly just doing like tours for anyone who could sign up. And I would like act as a kind of intermediary, anti-estate agent, taking them around any space they wanted to actually see inside of. Probably like within their own neighborhood or some other business. Anyway, thank you. Lovely to meet you. Great to meet you. (laughs) When can we, you said, when can we read your PhD? I want to read this thing. I'm submitting it at the end of the year. Cool. Supposedly, I, I mean, I, I think I have to, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. If yeah. I'm not embarrassed by it, I'll, <laughs> okay. I'll let you. <laughs> oh yeah, and you have a book that's being published that you've been editing, right? Yeah. yeah. Can you quickly just say a little something about that if you want um, to? Uh, 
there's a, there's a there's a book we're in the final stages of wrapping it up it's going to come out in January and it's a summary or a best of um, the the realty um, events and commissions that came together over the last three four years so it's hopefully a really helpful introduction to this topic we've been discussing today it's not it's not like the expert level Hoster statistic posse type of um, talk it's more of an introduction for artists, curators, students who, who are interested in the art and urban development. Brilliant, thank you. I'll be doing one final Freeze Week special, um, which will probably be published online the week after Freeze. Um, and for that, I will be going to the Property Investors Fair at the Excel Centre on Saturday. Um, so I think that should be a nice uh, addition to this um, trio. Until then, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I will be back soon. Asset Arrest, your global agent for accessing the property you can't afford.